Alrighty. Thank you, David. For those of you who are concerned, this little boo-boo on my nose up here came from carrying two handfuls of stuff and going up the stairs and losing my balance and rocking this way, and it drove the glasses into my nose. Oh. But that's another story. The text I'm going to work with this morning is, comes from the Old Testament, and sometimes we're not prone to go there. We want to be in the Gospels and the Epistles, but there's the Old Testament stands as a foundation for the new, and you don't understand the new without comprehending the old. And so today I'm speaking from the Old Testament book of, of 1 Samuel, talking about a boy and an old man. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and there were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you, you call me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and he said, Here, here I am, you, you called me. My son Eli said, I, I didn't call you. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and he went to Eli and he said, here, here I am, here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, the story comes from long ago and far away, but it's just as pertinent to us today as it, as it was to, to Eli and Samuel thousands of years ago. Lord, help us to, to make that connection between then and then and now and, and to understand that, that you are the same yesterday, thousands of years ago, as you were a thousand years ago, as you are today, as you will be a thousand years from now. You're always about that business of calling us, calling us to, to be who you created us to be so that we might do the purpose for which you created us. Come, Lord Jesus. Speak to us this morning. In your name we do pray it. Amen and, and amen. When I stood before you a few weeks ago, I referenced these words spoken by Jesus 
just before he ascended into heaven, heaven, he's there on the Mount of Olives. His disciples, followers, or close people are around him. And, and he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, most churchgoers know those words as, as the Great Commission. Jesus' final charge to his, to his followers to, to evangelize and disciple the world. But the world's a big place, isn't it? In fact, it's so big that it's always been easy for Christians to, to shirk their responsibility thinking that, that there's no way in the world I could reach everybody so why should, I, why should I try it all? See? Well, when I was a young lad and, and my preacher was preaching on this text of the Great Commission, he took away that excuse for inaction because he explained it this way. He said, lumberjacks cut down a forest by focusing on one tree at a time one tree at a time. In the same way, the process of ultimately reaching everyone in the big world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it begins with each one of us reaching someone in our little world with the gospel of Christ. See? Now, I thought about my situation when the preacher said that. And I said, man, this is music to my ears. I got it made here. Because you see, in the latter years of Harry Truman's presidency, my little world consisted of a circle about a mile in diameter. And in that circle was the, the home where I lived, the church and the school that I attended, the neighborhood in which I played. Up the street was the, the branch library where I went on a regular basis and checked out the books that fueled my dreams. And then on the corner, there was this little store. That's where I went to redeem the bottles that I picked up along the roadways. He redeemed them for pennies, and then I'd turn right around and, and I'd give the store one of the pennies in exchange for Baby Ruth candy bars. It was a wonderful world. It was a, it was a little world. So when the, but the thing is, when the preacher said that it was my responsibility to reach someone in my, in my little world with the gospel, I thought I was off the hook. Because on Sunday mornings, everyone in my little world was already going to church somewhere. But tragically... Tragically, the Sundays of my childhood, when pews and chairs were full and the streets were empty, all that's long gone now. And now the reverse is true. And Christians, Christians can't see the trees for the forest. That said, I believe my Baptist pastor 70 years ago was, was on to something 
but he was articulating perhaps the only human strategy that has a hope of reaching the entire world with the good news of God in Christ. Because you see, while it's true that one person can't reach everyone, it's also true that one person can reach someone. And if enough one person's reach enough someone's by God's grace, in time, no one will be lost. I think Mother Teresa was, was on point when she said this. She said, never, never worry about numbers. Help one person at a time. And always start with the person nearest to you. Never worry about, don't, don't think about the big picture. Don't think about the whole forest. Think about that tree you're focusing on. Don't worry about evangelizing everybody. Evangelize one somebody. And start with those people in your own little world. See? As I pondered Jesus' great commission, in conjunction with this text from 1 Samuel, an old story came to mind that I thought would be an appropriate running theme for the thoughts that I want to share with you this morning on the power of influence. It's a true story. All the best stories are true stories. And, and, and some of you may have heard it, but I pray it'll bless all of you. It's a true story about an event in the life of Dr. J. Wallace Hamilton. He was the pastor of the Pasadena Community Church for 40 years during the first half of the last century. Now, in those days, the great ocean liners were the primary means of transporting people between Europe and the United States, and it was, it was on one of those great ocean liners that, that Dr. Hamilton heard the wonderful story of the man with two umbrellas. Please listen as I read Dr. Hamilton's personal account of the event. So Dr. Hamilton is, is speaking. He said, when I was crossing the Atlantic one summer, I noticed a dark-skinned man sitting in a deck chair reading the Bible. One day I sat beside him and, and said, forgive my curiosity, but, but I'm a minister. I see you come here every day and read your Bible. I assume you're a Christian, and I'm interested to know how you became one. Yes, replied the man as he set his Bible aside. I am a Christian, and I'm very glad to, to talk about it. You see, I'm a Filipino. I was born in a good home in the Philippines, and, and some years ago I came to the United States to study law in one of your fine universities. My first night on campus, a student came to see me. He said, I've come over to welcome you to the campus and to say that if there's anything I can do to help make your stay here more pleasant, I hope you will call on me. Then he asked me where I went to church. I named a denomination that was very prevalent in the Philippines, but, but I wasn't really very committed to it. He said, I can tell you where one of those churches is. It's not very easy to find, and it's quite a distance away. Let me make you a map. So he made an outline of the way of the church, and, and he left. 
When I awakened Sunday morning, it was raining. I thought to myself, I'll just not go to church this morning. Surely I can be forgiven for this. It's my first Sunday on a new campus. It's, it's raining, and the church is hard to find. I'll just turn over and get some sleep. Then there was a knock on the door. When I opened it, there stood that student. His raincoat was dripping wet, and on one arm he had two umbrellas. He said, I thought you might have a hard time finding your church, especially in the rain, so I came to walk along with you and to show you where it is. As I got dressed to go, I thought to myself, what kind of fellow is this? As we walked along in the rain under the two umbrellas, I said to myself, if this fellow is so concerned about my religion, I ought to know something about his. So I asked, where do you go to church? Oh, he replied, my, my church is just around the corner. I said, well, suppose we go to your church today and we'll go to my church next Sunday. I went to his church and I've never been back to my own. After four years, I felt the law was not for me, but rather I felt a call of God to the ministry. I went to Drew Seminary, was ordained a Methodist minister and received an appointment to a Methodist church in the Philippines. I am now the Methodist Bishop of the Philippines. The power of influence. The power of influence. One person who willingly inconvenienced himself for the sake of the gospel reached one person for Christ. And ultimately, the family of God was growing and maturing on the other side of the world. Friends, believers who do not shrink from opportunities to influence others by word and deed for good and for God are rare these days. But then they always have been. 3,000 years ago, Eli was a man who carried a second umbrella for others. He was a priest during a period of time that we now refer to as the Dark Ages of Hebrew history. It was a time when the descendants of Abraham did not have a national leader to unify them and to keep them spiritually focused. It was a time that the Bible tells us everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a me time, not a the time. Hannah, Hannah was the exception. She was a faithful and devoted Hebrew woman. She'd been praying for a child for a long, long time. And she promised that if her prayers were ever answered, that she would dedicate her child to God. Samuel was that child. And though the Bible tells us that the Word of God was rare in those, ways, in those days, Hannah knew that Eli was a man of great influence who walked in step with God. So when Samuel was weaned, 
she took him to Shiloh, and she asked the old priest Eli to raise her son to know and to love and to serve the Lord. Now, the passage I just read has that background to it. Samuel was probably three years old when he was weaned and taken to live with the old priest at Shiloh. He's a little fellow. Eli is already an older, very old man. Shiloh is where the Ark of the Covenant was. It preceded the, the, the tabernacle at Shiloh, preceded the temple in Jerusalem. And the picture we have here is of a little boy and someone akin to his grandfather. My grandfather was a special person. I suspect Charles were too. Hannah comes to see him once a year, but all the rest of the time, it's Eli and Samuel. And Eli's influence in the fellow and the little fellow's influence in Samuel too. And, and as, as Samuel's growing, four, five, six, eight, ten years old, at the same time he's growing up, Eli is growing old. His body is beginning to fail him. At the point where the text is today, he's almost nearly blind. The two become so close that, that you could see them. I can see them in my mind's eye that, that as they're sleeping at night, Eli calls out to him, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel gets up and runs in there and asks the old man, what can, what can I do for you? And it's it's kind of like, it's kind of like when a mother has a little baby. They sleep, but they don't sleep so soundly that they don't hear that baby crying. As soon as that baby makes a noise, the mama's up. Well, see, I think that's how close that Eli and Samuel were. And as the old man got weaker and weaker and blinder and blinder, he slept lighter and lighter, always attuned to his beloved old man calling out to him. And here one night, Samuel's about 13, and he hears, Samuel, Samuel. He'd heard that call many, many times before. He gets up and he, and he runs to Eli. Hey, here, what, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? No, son, I, d I didn't call you. So he goes back and lays down. And then in some period of time, he, he hears it again, Samuel, Samuel. And he jumps up and he runs in there. What can I do for you? Can I get you a drink of water? You need something to eat? Can I help you go to the bathroom? What, what can I do for you? He's so used to helping the old man who's now frail and blind. No, son, I didn't, I didn't call you goes back and lays down. Then he hears his name again, Samuel, Samuel. He goes back to Eli. What, what is it? What is it? And then it dawns on Eli that what the boy is hearing is not his voice, but God's voice. And he says, son, go back and, and lay down. And when he speaks to you again, you just answer, 
ask the Lord and say, here I am. And it goes back. And then I love, I love what the text says. The text says that God came like he's right there. And the boy's laying down on his mat. And it's like the text leads us to believe that, that the Lord came right there and he was close to the boy. Close to him. And then he speaks to him. God does. And I think God gets close to him because when he speaks to Samuel again, he speaks in that still, small voice of God. And he says, Samuel, Samuel, here I am, Lord. Speak, for your servant listens. Most of us don't hear God speaking to us. We hear all kinds of things. We're inundated with, with sounds. And if it ever gets quiet, we turn on some machine and stick some things in our ears and we jack up the noise again. See? People, have you ever known people are uncomfortable with silence? God's speaking to us. We've tuned him out with all the other noise around. And here it is, God speaking to the little boy. Samuel. Samuel. I think it would have been impossible for Samuel to hear and respond quickly and enthusiastically to God's call if it had not been for Eli's influence over those ten years. Ten years, he used Eli's second umbrella. Ten years. Influence. The power of one life to impact on another. Hear it again. Influence. The power of one life to impact on another. Now, without exception, we are all influenced every day by what other people say and do. And at the same time, we have the power to influence others. And we do. All the time we influence others. The only option that we have is how we're going to influence them, for good or, or for bad. I mentioned Dr. J. Wallace Hamilton earlier. He said this about influence. He said, it's a fact that, that every one of us does cast a shadow that heals or hurts, blesses or blights. Your shadow is your influence, the effect you have on people. It has a lasting quality. It lives beyond the life from which it emanated. Once exerted, it moves on into the stream of life like a living force. It never comes to an end. Have you ever thought about the fact that you're influencing people all the time? And that your influence on them is going to last long after you're dead and gone. Who are you influencing? How are you influencing them? What impact are you having on their life? 
And friends, our society is not so unlike the one in which Eli influenced Samuel thousands of years ago. The hard rain of disbelief is falling on our land. Most people are indeed determining for themselves what is right and what is wrong. The Word of God is rarely referenced in public these days. And for sure, for sure, it is a me time, not a the time. Now more than ever before in my lifetime, Jesus' words to his first century followers are echoing across the remnants of Christendom with a huge sense of urgency. Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that, God, that God's going to raise out folks to go in the harvest. You need to know the context of that. Jesus is there. He's got his little band of 12 right there with him, and, and he's looking out on a vast sea of people, thousands of them. And they walk from great distances to come. Some of them want to be healed. They want to be touched. They want to be heard. They want to listen to what Jesus is saying because Jesus has given them the word of hope, of hope, in a desperate, desperate time in that area of the world. And he's looking at them. He's saying, fellas, look. Look at all the people who are thirsty, who are yearning, yearning to receive what I have to give them. So many people. You and you and you, Matthew, James, Peter. None of y'all can reach everybody. We need to be praying. We need to be praying that the Lord will raise up more people, more laborers, more people who are in touch with who I am, who will get out there in the harvest. You know, by God's grace, by God's grace, we are answering the Lord's call to labor among the lost. We as a congregation. And the harvest of our commitment to evangelism is obvious in the growing number of people that are joining this congregation. But here's an uncomfortable truth. Bringing people into a relationship with Jesus is only part of the Great Commission. We've got to turn right around and teach those same people to be disciples of Jesus. Now, I think it's fair to say that we are hitting a home run on the evangelism part, but we are striking out on the discipleship part. And why is that? It's because most of us are not involved with Bible studies. We're not involved in serving others. We're not involved in small groups. We're not involved in anything beyond coming to a church service. And I think the, there's lots of reasons for that. But, but I, think, I think one of them is that over the last 60, 70 years, churches have started to train us 
But that's all we need to be doing. I've always loved reading. And I read all kind of things. I, I give credit to that little branch library out there where that was close to where I lived. Go in there and check out those little books. And I love the Captain Horatio Hornblower books and books about the Navy. My father was a Navy officer. And about the Bounty, the Bounty Trilogy, Captain Bly and Pitcairn Island, all the rest of that. They fueled your imagination. And so, from a little being a little, I've always read, y'all, I hope y'all read a lot. I hope you do. And I read a great variety of things. Lately, I've been reading about elephants. Anybody else in here reading about elephants these days? <laughs> now, I'm not, I'm not saying Elvis now. I'm talking about elephants, elephants, elephants. And I found something in reading about elephants that I believe can help us begin to understand how we got to where we are with respect to discipleship. It seems that most adult elephants are secured by a little small rope around one ankle. That's all. Now, adult elephants, that's thousands of pounds. That's a pile of muscle. And they could easily break that little rope, but they don't even try. The article explained why. It said trainers use the same size rope for baby elephants all the way up to adulthood because they're too small when they're babies to break free from the rope. They grow up being conditioned that the rope is stronger than they are. As adults, they think the rope would still hold them, so they don't try to fight it. Now, here's the connection between us and the adult elephants. In the 1960s, during the Vietnam War, people began to walk away from, from churches in droves. And pastors didn't want to alienate the few people that were, were still coming to church. Didn't want to alienate them by saying that, hey, you need to be doing the Bible studies and all the rest of it. They just, they just let all that go because they were just so thankful that they were coming, see? Well, what happens was that this de-emphasis of discipleship continued more and more and more and more until most Christians became conditioned, there is the word, most, most Christians, adult Christians became conditioned to the fact that God would be clapping for them if they just darkened the church's doors once a week. And every year, we slip further and further down that slippery slope of unfaithfulness to the point that now statistics show that most adult Christians believe that they are being full-blown, follow, devoted followers of Jesus if they attend a worship service 40% of the time. That means out of 10 Sundays, 
they think they are nailing it if they come to church four times. And any thought of any involvement with the church beyond coming to a worship service, any thought of that is an afterthought if it's thought of at all. And sadly, because many of us have that very same mindset, when we invite others to, to come to church with us, what we're doing is inviting them to walk in our shadow. We're inviting them to think that being a devoted follower of Jesus comes to going to worship service four out of ten times. We don't talk to them about discipleship because we're not involved in discipleship. We don't talk to them about serving other people during the week because we're not doing that. We are adult elephants being held by the thin mental rope of habitual disregard for discipleship. Hear it again. We are adult elephants being held by the thin mental rope of habitual disregard for discipleship. And dear ones, God's looking at us. And I do not believe that God is clapping for us. I believe he is weeping for us because he knows all that we are missing. Let me go back to elephants a minute. Do you all know what a rogue elephant is? A rogue elephant is an elephant that breaks that little rope. That's all. A rogue elephant is an elephant that breaks that little rope around one ankle. Now, what if we went rogue? What if we started acting like like, like rogue Christians who break that mental tie that hooks us to a disregard for discipleship? What if, we went, what if we went rogue and each and every one of us committed to regular worship attendance and influenced someone to join us? What if we went rogue and we committed to taking part in a Bible study and a life group and we influence someone to join us? What if we went rogue and, and, and we committed to ministering to others and then we influenced someone else to, to join us? What if we went rogue and all of us committed to reaching others for Christ and then we influenced someone to join us? What if we went rogue and we committed to using our time and our talents to help this congregation to shine even brighter as a God-honoring beacon in the low country of South Carolina, and then we influence someone to join us. Indeed, what if each one of us reached someone for Christ?
ultimately, no one will be lost. Let's pray. Holy Father, laborers are, are few always, and the harvest is more plentiful now than it ever, ever, ever has been. And Lord, I'm, we're thankful, thankful, I'm thankful this morning for the, the folks amongst us who are, who are out in the harvest, who are inviting folks to come to worship. Thank you. Praise God for them. But Lord, open our eyes and our hearts to see that that's just, that's just halfway home. Just halfway home. That we've got to do our part to help disciple those same folks. But Lord, we, we know down deep that we don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to encourage other people to be doing things that we're not doing. So Lord, this morning I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would act like a, like a dynamite to those little mental ropes of disregard for discipleship that are holding us down. That your Holy Spirit would, would so empower us that we would go rogue and begin to be Christians in a way that you wouldn't be weeping for, but you would indeed be clapping for. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we do pray it. Amen and, and amen.